Asalaamu Alaikum everybody, welcome to Converts in Conversation. This week we've got a little bit of a treat for you. We've got me, Jodie, Almas and a guest with us. So Almas, do you want to say your salams and then we'll introduce our guest? Asalaamu Alaikum everybody. Yes, it's me. I'm back again. You can't shut me up, can you Jodie? So subhanAllah, I'm back again, but I'm looking forward to hearing from Amanda. So I will try and stay a bit quiet this time. Inshallah. Okay, Amanda, so introduce yourself to our listeners, because um, I'm sure they're all excited and intrigued to hear about you and your background. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah khair for inviting me on. Um, yeah, my name is Amanda. Uh, I currently live in the south of Wales, but as you can probably tell from my bizarre accent, I'm born and raised in Canada, but I've been in the UK for, oh gosh, the last 23, 24 years. Um, and I've also been Muslim for about 23, 24 years. So, yeah, that's just in a nutshell. Mashallah. So I suppose this week we are discussing an interesting topic about parenting as a convert, but also children of converts. Um, so I've got one little boy, um, Alhamdulillah, who is four, and I've got two stepchildren. Um, Almas, do you want to sort of explain your situation? Of so, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, I've got four kids, um, ranging in ages from 24 down to 10, um, and we will go into it in a little bit more detail. But I've home educated all my children, um, so maybe a little bit something different to add to the discussion. How about you, Amanda? Yeah, mashallah, I have two boys. Um, one is, he's at university, the other one is currently doing his A-levels. They don't actually live with me, they live with their father. So again, a little bit of a different perspective, maybe. Inshallah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Getting these different perspectives, because um, variety is the spice of life and all that. So if we think about our first sort of question, what were our views of parenting before we became Muslim? So expectations, responsibilities, kind of that, that viewpoint beforehand. Almas, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah. Um, so I had, I was one of these strange people. Well, I guess I still am one of these strange people um, that had very sort of set ideas about time. So I knew that I wanted uh, to be married by the time I was 24. Don't ask me how. I just had that feeling um, and I remember turning 23 and thinking I don't know anybody how's this going to happen because I thought the person I need I marry I need to know them for at least a year because I need to know how they change with the seasons just in case they you know because you could do um, but then I also knew that I wanted to have children by the time I was 26 now alhamdulillah all thanks and praises to Allah because I had my first child a month after I turned 26 um, so I really wanted kids but I hadn't really thought much beyond the, I, one of the things I definitely had thought was I, I, I really want kids, I want to be able to teach them things. But it was things about nature, I love nature. So it was things about, you know, identification of trees or stuff like that. But I hadn't really thought about how I was going to teach them anything to do with Islam. To be fair, because my knowledge was so minimal, I guess I hadn't gone down that route. I hadn't thought about, Mm, how am I going to impart any kind of uh, religious knowledge to my children? I just was very, I really did want children and I always wanted four children and subhanAllah, Allah has blessed me with four children. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a little bit about my views on kids before I actually had any children. What about you, Amanda? Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I was very similar before I became Muslim. I remember, gosh, I guess I must have been a teenager, maybe 17, 18, thinking that, 
you know, when, when it's the year 2000, I'm going to be 27. Um, probably by that time I'll be married, I'll have a couple of kids. And, you know, I just sort of had this little, not a fantasy, but like this imagined scenario in my head. And sure enough, um, the year 2000 came along and I was expecting my first son, subhanAllah, as it happened. But I hadn't actually thought of parenting as such, like as in the roles and the responsibilities and what you need to do. I just really loved babies growing up. And I'd always, you know, had part-time jobs, babysitting, and I just adored taking care of babies and toddlers. And so that was my idea of parenting, which was admittedly incredibly naive. I hadn't thought of, you know, what do you need to actually do with children, um, let alone you know, the, the, you know, how, how is it going to be with their father? How is, you know, educating and things like that hadn't given it any thought. Sorry, just jumping in there with uh, something that Amanda said, it made me think as well. Yes, I think I was quite naive. Sadly, I think I was, I think this is kind of out there in society. I was thinking about kids as sort of this ultimate accessory where <laughs> you could dress them up, you could put them in different clothes every day. <laughs> It, you know, really didn't go into changing nappies or sleepless nights, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I had quite a naive view of children and not really thinking about being a mother. It was more about just having this beautiful, cute little baby. Jodie, what did you want to say? I'm kind of smiling to myself because I'm like the polar opposite of both of you. So before I was Muslim, I was a very, I was a staunch atheist. I was against everything. And it's almost that thing of I was resisting my future so much that, I, that you know, the ego loved it. So I was really, really arrogant thinking back. Um, so I was anti-marriage, didn't see the point of it. Why would you ever get married? Like, I just, no, it's a piece of paper. Why am I going to do that? I was anti-children. Why am I going to add more people to the world? Like, that's a horrible thing to do. And weirdly, it's not that I didn't like children because I was a nursery nurse. And I loved working with children. But I saw so many parents that worked like 18 hours a day drop the child off at say half six in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning and pick them up at half six in the evening. And we even had a two-year-old, it used to break my heart, she used to call us all mum. And she wasn't bothered when mum came to pick her up because she spent more time with us than she did with her own parents. When she was at home, they had a nanny. And it was just really, really sad. So I think I became almost like, I'm just anti-everything. Why am I going to buy into this? But when I became Muslim, it was almost like this... I'd kind of gone, oh, hey, Fitra, I'm going to listen to you now. And actually, maybe I do want to get married and maybe I do want to have babies. I was never a sort of, I love babies. I'm more the sort of person that wants to get to toddler age. They sort of, they're interactive then. And I'm like, yay, I can play with you now and have conversations and stuff. Whereas when the babies, they're kind of like, well, you look after them, you protect them, but they don't do much for me, if, if that kind of makes sense. So I'm kind of the very much pro-children, love children, but I'm not sort of fuzzy with newborns kind of person. So when I meet friends and they go, do you want to hold my new baby? I'm like, um, no, not really. No, because they can't cuddle you back. Whereas when they're three, I can give you a good squeeze. So it's kind of that, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one thinking back to my views when I was sort of like 21, being a nursery nurse and being really anti, like, why would you ever do this to children and have another one? Um, and then as a Muslim thinking, actually, you know, he's my world. Why, why wouldn't I have him sort of thing? It's, it's really interesting to see the different perspectives because we're all mums, but our perspectives are, are very, very different in terms of how we came to be a parent. An interesting one. So if we're thinking about responsibilities and expectations, what comes to mind in terms of being a parent? Does anyone want to jump in on that? Amanda? Yeah, um, 
well, I was just thinking, you know, I was saying that before Islam, I really didn't have much of a structured idea of what it meant to be a parent. And unfortunately, that continued even after I took Shahada, because I think, um, I mean, I took Shahada in 1997, eight, it's all a blur, but, um, <laughs> but it, it was, it, at that time, there was a lot of societal pressure on people as soon as you converted to get married. Um, and I'm not going to say that it's any better now. It really isn't. But back then, I think it was slightly worse. And and especially because I was I was past 25. So, you know, I was getting up there and I needed to hurry up. So I was sort of railroaded into marriage in a way. And um, the person who I ended up married to was actually younger than I was and and had even less of an idea about parenting than I did. But the idea was that you get married and you have children straight away you don't wait there's no point to wait you know this is what Allah has written and you don't make any effort to stop it or anything there was no planning sort of involved and I think that in hindsight I think that you know parents do have a responsibility to their children not not to plan the pregnancy because obviously that's in Allah's hands but to before you even think about having children to have an idea and to have discussed you know things like how are you going to teach them how are you going to impart the faith to them you know are you going to take them to madrasa are you going to put them in an islamic school are you going to homeschool them you know um what language are you going to speak at home these things all have a big impact and they can lead to arguments they can lead to you know a lot of marital discord if they're not discussed ahead of time so i would think that that you know as parents i in hindsight i would have liked to have had that be more transparent before i even thought of to be honest before i had even thought of getting married let alone attempting to actually get pregnant so and these are things that i don't think are stressed enough in a lot of cultures you know we sort of think you know, oh, it's whenever Allah wills. But yes, that's true. It is, and it is all written. But you still have to know and educate yourself on how you're going to, to you know, tackle the challenge before you try it, so to speak. So I'll, I'll jump in because I, I was a little bit different, I think, from Amanda's situation. So I took on Islam when I was actually just after I turned 23. So when I was looking to get married, I was already Muslim. Um, and it so happens that I ended up marrying somebody that I had known for years. Um, so that worked out well, because I knew how he changed with the seasons. Um, and, but, you know, the, the thing that annoyed me, and this is, I think, a bit similar to what Amanda was saying, was that um, when I got married, oh, the questions, like after a month of getting married, oh, so are you starting a family? And I thought, no, because I want to get to know my husband first properly. So I had my first child two years after um I got married and that that was about right because I had my body clock I or my emotions or whatever had got to the stage where I did want a child the only downside was that each of the four pregnancies literally they just got worse and worse and worse I was very ill with each of the pregnancies so it was a very challenging time for us as a family for us as husband and wife to go through that because uh, anyone who's been pregnant knows that your emotions are not your own. Your hormones definitely are doing their own thing. Um, and so I did find that challenging. I think that led to me not being particularly engaged with my children at the beginning. But my husband, bless him, he was very, he is, still is very, very hands on. So he sort of just naturally sort of took over that caring role at the beginning. I would do the feeding, pretty much everything else was done by my husband. Um, and we didn't really discuss 
anything. My husband isn't a great one at discussing. He thinks a lot in his mind. And then when he thinks, oh, yes, this is going to be the way forward for us as a family, he then presents it to me. And I'm like, what? Ah, because then I have to start absorbing all that information and kind of working out how that fits in with my plans, if I had any plans. I'm a terrible long-term thinker. If you look at my diary, I have about the first two weeks filled, and that's about it, because that's all I can think of. My husband, on the other hand, is a very good long-term thinker. So in that sense, we do partner each other quite well. Jodie, I want to know what you've got to say. Go on. I've got something else to say, but I want to know what you've got to say. Jazakallah for for giving me a turn, even though you've got a thought in your head to to depart on us. Um, I, I was kind of smiling in my head because I'm very much a short term thinker and quite impulsive. Things go in my brain and I have to say them out loud, otherwise I forget them. I'm that sort of person. My husband's autistic though, so he communicates in a really interesting way. The polar opposite to our master's husband. So we talk about everything really explicitly. Everything is out there discussed because otherwise wires just get crossed. So when we started to think about children, we got married in, say, the March. That was a test, wasn't it? I can't forget my own wedding anniversary. So we got married in the March. So we thought, well, let's try. It might take a few years, three or four probably. And actually it was within about two weeks of trying that, subhanAllah, baby comes along. So Allah plans. All the medics can say what they want, but Allah plans. So we, we did discuss things quite explicitly because I was, at the time, I was a children's therapist. So all I studied was child development in lots and lots of depth. And I knew what was, I'm going to do air quotes that people can't see, but good parenting, bad parenting, what a development should look like, what should be happening in pregnancy. The problem with that was I had so much noise that I got really, really anxious. So, oh my gosh, if I'm worried in pregnancy, then I'm putting this in the baby. And what if this and what if that? And it was just a real anxiety breaking time. And Blessing my husband had to support me through that. My actual physical pregnancy was fine. I just carried on as normal, did not slow down, running about, just as normal. And he was sort of going, do you, do you not need to slow down and have rest? And I'm like, no, I'm fine, bouncing around. But then when I became a mum, the expectations I had were, yeah, baby will need feeding a lot and I probably won't get a lot of sleep. Um, and we'll probably live in pyjamas for a few months before things get back to normal. In actual fact, I found it a massive struggle. I was mental health wise, I was really unwell. So he had to take up a lot of, of the, the sort of slack. I fed the baby. That was about it. I, I just I was not functioning as a sort of human being. So Alhamdulillah, mashallah to him, you know, he's really, really supportive. But I think having that expectation of how it should be in terms of having a baby and the people I worked with and then how it actually was, was just like a, a, a real it was a real shock to me, I think. So I had all these expectations of how I should be as a mom. And then actually I, I couldn't keep up to those, you know, the standards were just, just, you know, not achievable. Almas, do you want to jump in? So there's a couple of things that um, affected me um, when my kids were younger. Um, one of them was that my own mother tongue that I knew very poorly, I was quite keen to get it back. But at the same time with my kind of, Muslim hat on I thought oh but I want my children to read the Quran and understand it in Arabic so therefore they need to know Arabic now I had studied a bit of Arabic but I mean a little bit so this idea that I had that somehow my children were going to be fluent in Arabic when neither myself nor my husband speak Arabic I mean the only language my husband speaks is English so I just thought how and actually it took until the third child for me to finally figure out that 
they're not going to speak Arabic because I'm not an Arabic speaker. So then I just started speaking my own Indian mother tongue. Um, and I felt okay with that. But there were issues in the family because um, it wasn't always welcome that I was speaking this publicly. I'm doing air quotes now because somehow I had to try and fit into my um, husband's culture that was very very difficult so I had this struggle with when I was trying to bring up my children uh the way I thought best which was actually the way my mum had brought me up because I thought she brought me up pretty well um so I was using her parenting skills for myself but then at the same time trying to fit in this Islam bit and this new culture bit as well that was I found that quite challenging Amanda what did you want to say yeah, subhanAllah, the part that you're saying about wanting your kids to speak Arabic and then not being able to because nobody's an Arabic speaker. So my children's father is an Arabic speaker. Um, it is his first language. And yet he refused to speak it at home. He would only speak English at home. And because I was, so here's, here's where things started to go wrong. I'll be totally honest. <laughs> well, no, it's not where things started to go wrong, but it's one of the many things that was wrong. Um, he expected me as the mother to be the one to educate the children and therefore I had to learn Arabic and speak it to the kids but he wouldn't speak it nor would he teach it to me and so you know of course that was an abject failure of an experiment because I can't speak Arabic I can understand it all right after 16 years of hearing it on the television all day but I can't actually put a sentence together so my children although they identify as you know, their Arab background more than they identify as their British background. They, um, they don't speak Arabic. The older one, he speaks it well, well enough that he passes GCSE. The younger one couldn't string a sentence together if he tried, bless him. So, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot there. This is why I was saying earlier, you know, you need to discuss ahead of time what language is going to be spoken, or what language are you going to impart to your kids if you don't both speak the same language, or if, you know, if somebody is from... Um, you know, another country, obviously, my ex-husband was an immigrant, and he, his family speaks Arabic. And so, you know, the idea that your children may not be able to communicate with their grandparents, that needs to be addressed straight away. And I think it really, you know, language shapes how we identify ourselves hugely. And if we have children who are, you know, they're identifying as being one ethnicity, but then they don't speak the language that is associated with that ethnicity, they're going to have identity problems because, you know, the, 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 the family's identity, the family group may not accept them. They, they might look at them as like, I know that, you know, my children, when they meet people from their father's same background, people are like, you know, what do you mean you're, you're, you're one of us? What do you mean? But you don't speak Arabic. How? How is that possible? And when they, you know, you know when they're with their friends who may be white or, you know, whatever, but like Welsh born, they just accept them as being Welsh, but then they don't identify as that as such. So it's very, it can get very, very confusing. And I think that, you know, if we want to help our children to navigate this, we have to have a plan set up ahead of time. I'm going to jump in there if you don't mind. Um, so me and my husband were both white converts. So we speak English and nothing else, but it's really interesting. So my parents, his parents aren't bothered. You know, we speak English, we speak English at home. That's just standard for, for all of the family. But it's really interesting how other people have really strong opinions about what we should be teaching our child. So they will ask and say, oh, so, you know, where, where is he up to in terms of his Arabic? And I'm like, he's not. He's 
well, he's four for a start, and he knows a couple of letters because Almas, mashallah to her, she is my Arabic teacher, and he has basically heard some letters and then goes, oh, that's ta, that's ta. So he knows some, some little basics. He's four, he's still learning to re read and write English. But there's lots of people go, well, you don't, you don't speak Arabic at home. And I'm like, how would I when I don't speak it myself? I can sound out some letters, but that's about it. it. It would be a very long day if you had to sound everything out, you know, without actually speaking a language. But people have really strong opinions about what we should or should not be teaching him. And I suppose that that brings us on to our, our next sort of question of, did we feel as becoming parents or, or being parents, did we feel that we had to change anything about ourselves in terms of being able to educate our children? Almas. So one very clear memory that I have is that when my first boy, when my, my first child, when he was two, um, and I remember I'd, I had given him his lunch and somebody had just given me a small dua book. Most probably people know it's called Fortress of the Muslim. And somebody had just given me this book, say, here you go, sister, you should learn these du'as. And I'm looking at the index going, do I have to learn these in order? What, what, how do I do this? Um, so he was about to have his sandwich at lunch. And I said, oh, hang on a minute, darling. Um, we need to say this following du'a. And I'm reading out this du'a. And I know for a fact that I knew <laughs> literally zero before my kids were born about Islam or just what, what a lot of Muslims would take on as their natural, like the dua that they say when they wake up or the dua they say when they go to bed. I knew none of this. So I basically learned alongside my children. The other thing was that when, um, I think it was when my, my first, yeah, when my first boy was six months old, I knew that I wanted to be able to read the Quran in Arabic, but I'd never done anything about it. But then when my first child came along, I thought, well, hang on, how am I gonna teach him if I don't know? And I had this underlying feeling that I didn't actually want my children to go to madrasa. I just felt that, it sounds awful, but I felt they'd be safer if they were taught by me. So I just, I think I'd heard all these wild stories about madrasa, about people being hit with rods and things like that. So I just thought, well, okay, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach them myself. But for that reason, I then went on a journey of seeking knowledge. Anybody that I met, that even knew a smattering of Arabic. I remember actually what, my husband's friend, he was a convert who'd, who'd um, accepted Islam in Egypt when he'd gone as part of his university's course to study Arabic in Egypt. And he used to pass by our house to go home. So I used to say to my husband, if I bake a cake or if I make dinner, can you get your friend to just come and help me with some letters in Arabic, the Arabic alphabet, just to know how to produce them, so pronounce them. So any person that I met that could teach me something, I'd be like, can you teach me this just a little bit and, and I'll bake you a cake or something, you know. But I, I went on this journey of seeking knowledge for the sake of my children. And it really struck me when I was doing that because everyone will say to you, and there is obviously this underlying knowledge that children are a blessing. They're a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I really understood it when I started to seek knowledge for their sake and in that way, helping myself as well. So that was that was an absolutely beautiful blessing that I got from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to learn Arabic and then learning it, I was then teaching my children and I start teaching other people as well. Amanda, what did you want to say? Um, just on the topic of if I felt the need to change anything about myself, um, before I actually got up the nerve to go to the mosque and take the Shahada, I had been 
practicing Islam for about a year, year and a half. So I had learned how to pray. I'd learned all the Arabic. I'd learned a few surahs and all of that. And I had been reading whatever I could get my hands on about Islam. So I felt that I had a fairly good grounding already by the time I decided that, yes, this is for me. Um, so, you know, I had a little bit of a different journey from a lot of sisters I know who sort of, you know, receive, subhanAllah, that hidayah, that, 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 moment of, of clarity and then they just embrace it and then they start to learn alhamdulillah you know all of our journeys are different but i think because of that i didn't think that i needed to change anything about myself i was already practicing i was already muslim i had already sort of you know purged myself of the bad habits of my culture kind of thing but then when i got married and now listen i i, I should put in the caveat here i had a very toxic and abusive marriage for the 16 years that I was married. So it wasn't, I had no support. I had no, you know, my mental health took a battering quite literally, and I did as well, subhanAllah. But one of the expectations of me within that marriage was to become Arab. And it was never said as such, but it became clear that me being white and Canadian from a British background was not good enough. That, that Arabs were superior and I had to be that. And it was fed to me in so many different ways. So when my children were born and when they were quite small, I was really under a lot of pressure to make sure that they came out Arab. Um, and that, you know, my, my input, my cultural input had, was, was to have no bearing on them whatsoever. And again, it wasn't said explicitly, but it was implied in so many different ways. And I think that, um, you know, again, in hindsight, I wish I had stood up to that a little bit more, although I know full well I couldn't have stood up to it in the situation, but at the time, but you know, in hindsight, I think if somebody tried to do that now, I would be, I would stand up to it and I would say, you know, what makes your culture superior to mine? We're all Muslim. We all put our heads to the ground in the same way at the same times of day, you know, subhanAllah, it doesn't make one person better than another. And indeed, there were a lot of things in that culture that were really un-Islamic and, you know, really destructive. So, um, you know, I think at the time, yes, I was under a lot of pressure to change myself, but alhamdulillah, it failed. I didn't change myself at all. And I do see that my children have, you know, despite the efforts of everybody around them to Arabize them, you know, they do still, um, they, they did benefit from that a little bit. They, they saw me still having my culture and having my, and they do have that understanding to a degree, not as much as I would like, perhaps, um, but, you know, it is still there. But I think that this idea that we need to change ourselves can be a dangerous one. It can be a tool for manipulation. Um, I think it's better to, to impart, especially when sisters are new, that they need to learn the religion, but we also need to learn who we are as Muslims before we start bringing other people into the mix, such as spouses and children and so on. Um, Jody, you wanted to jump in. So I suppose just in summary for our first part, it sounds like we've got a level of responsibility to learn and change for the sake of our children because they are a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but also the expectations that are put upon us that are not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can be really unhelpful, toxic. Um, so it's, it sounds like it's, it's a real struggle for a lot of parents to know the boundary of that, of actually where should I do things and where shouldn't I do things and where is it okay to stand up and where is it actually I need to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I suppose when you become a parent 
sort of early on in your journey of being Muslim, that can be a really tricky time for a lot of people, I imagine. So we will see you guys after the break. Asalaamu Alaikum, you're back with us after our short break to Converts in Conversation. We're continuing talking about parenting as converts. So we're going to start off with education and schooling. Who wants to jump in first on this topic, Almas? Yes, so um, I maybe have a slightly different uh, run through of how I dealt with my kids' schooling. I guess I didn't deal with it at the beginning. My husband thought about it a lot, read a lot about it, listened to a lot of talks and said, you know what? I think we should homeschool. And I said, uh, pardon? I just, I, my second baby was three months old. I just kind of envisaged, I really had envisaged my children. I wanted to do something better for my children than I'd had. So I wanted them to go to a nursery. Yes, a good nursery. And then I wanted them to go to a Muslim school because that would have been better than um, the non-faith-based school that I had gone to. That's, that was my reasoning. Anyway, I thought I want them to be really grounded in their faith. So the best thing I can think of is a Muslim school. But my husband had thought beyond that. It did take me a good while to get my head around it. Um, and I can honestly say, I think it took me about three years until my oldest child was of schooling age. So when he turned five and it was finally that crunch time of, are we sending him to school or not? And then I thought, no, let's just try and see. And the more I did it, the more, I can't say, you know, no, definitely not. Every day was not a bed of roses, that's for sure. But now in, in like looking back and, you know, the oldest is 24, then I've got a 22 year old, a 20 year old, and now this 10 year old, uh, I do feel that for myself, for our situation, for my own conscious, for my own faith, everything, I just feel like Allah guided me to be accepting to that way of schooling my children. I don't really like homeschooling. I prefer the word home educating because schooling is a bit too rigid for me. And I'm not a very rigid person in that sense. So I liked home educating my kids. I loved spending all that time with them. I love the kind of natural way that it inclined itself to a family orientated life. Um, we took our children on Umrah a couple of times, you know, when everybody else's kids would be in school. So there was all these kind of benefits to it. There were some very difficult points to it as well, which meant that as husband and wife, we had to really be supportive of each other. Uh, my husband cut down on his time at work. He only works three days a week so that he completely shares everything. I always say I think he does more than I do because, to be fair, I get to a point where I think, mm, I don't want to take this subject any further with my kids. So basically, my husband said to me, you do what you feel happy with with children and I'll do everything else. So that's how it works in our family where I just say, right, I've had enough, going to have a shower, go and see to your father now because I've had enough of you. Um, but I absolutely do love home educating my children because it's just meant, it's expanded my thoughts as well. And it's given me opportunities, I think, that I maybe wouldn't have had before. Certain subjects that as a child, maybe you're steered away from with Asian parents because they want you to go towards a science field the whole time. Whereas I really liked history, I really liked the kind of social sciences, and alhamdulillah, I was able to further that love for it when I was teaching my own children that. So that's that's the kind of route that we took. What about you, Amanda? Um, I really, I really have to say that what you and your husband did is what I dreamed of doing. <laughs> Mashallah. Um, I had a very idealized notion that I was going to homeschool my children, and it just wasn't possible. 
with the way the, the way the family dynamics were working and the the pressures that were put on me um in terms of you know taking care of the home and all of that stuff it was not ever going to be possible to home educate them and we did put them into school um into a local primary school just a normal state school i think my issue with schooling in the UK was the religious education element of it. Um, obviously, I grew up in Canada, and we have a purely secular education system. There's no religious education whatsoever. We, we're not even taught about Christianity at all in school. That's Unless you go to a religious-based school, you don't hear about it. Um, so when I came to the UK, and I found out that in primary schools, they were teaching them religion, I thought, that's not what you go to school for. So um, I actually, from the start, from the minute my older son entered reception, I exercised my right to withdraw him from RE um, because I just thought I was going through quite a strict phase and I was going through a phase where I didn't want him to have any un-Islamic religious education. So I thought, no. Um, and what sort of cemented that idea was one time the school, in, he was in reception, the school asked me to go in to talk about Islam to this reception class. And the way they framed the class, it was they were presenting me like this exotic foreigner, you know, and oh, don't you, you know, see children how she wears her headscarf? Isn't that like Mary? And, and oh, so they do Eid, but we do Christmas. And I was thinking, my son is part of this, we, what, what, what is this? So that sort of cemented that, yes, I've made the right decision. But I wanted homeschool. And I, I wanted to give them that sort of nurturing environment at home and, and be able to do that. And I did get a chance to do it very briefly. We went to stay abroad with my in-laws for about six months. And so I had this opportunity, I, you know, we took them out of school and I told the school that we were going, they gave us some resources and so on. So the idea was that I was going to continue educating them abroad. Um, but it was just impossible to do because of all of the other demands. I, I, I had absolutely zero support. So unfortunately, those six months, my children had very little in, in terms of education. And alhamdulillah, they were young enough that it didn't have too much of a detrimental impact. And they were with their cousins, and so they were playing all the time. And they, they benefited in other ways. But I think that um, homeschooling, if you can do it, it can be an amazing thing. But I just didn't have you know the, the, the network and the support to be able to do it. Um, so that was my compromise. If I had been able to afford a Muslim school, that might have been, you know, a sort of a, a, a middle way of, of doing things. But I think part of the issue is, and this is a dilemma that I have, and maybe you sisters can, can um, give more information. I always do worry about children being able to deal with society at large if they're shielded from it too much. And I honestly don't know what the right answer is here. I would like to hear how you sisters dealt with this. I'll jump in at this point. So my little one is four. He's in reception. So we've we've very recently been in this, this sort of um, decision-making period. And for a long time, he's a June baby, so he's young for his year. For a long time, I looked into whether I could delay him in school. But where I live, which is Cheshire East, Unless you've got a diagnosed special needs issue, um, you, you've got pretty much no chance, even though legally we are absolutely within our rights to request that. So that that was no go. So it was September. Unfortunately, because of finances, work, etc. At the moment, we can't think about home education. It is something we have thought long and hard about, to be fair. It may well happen in the future. I don't know. We chose a school that is literally it's literally over the road it's like a 30 second walk away so it's dead 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 close and it is the most 
and I put in air quotes, most secular school in the area. But obviously Christmas is coming up. Everything is Christmas. Everything is Santa. Everything is Christmas trees. There's Christmas jumper days. There's, oh, what was it the other day? Reindeer dash. Every, everything. And so it, little one came home the other day and he was telling me all about Santa. And I said, well, yes, yeah, some of the other children do believe in Santa, but, you know, we, we don't. The only thing we believe in is a last man that's that's it you know creator of everything he's the most important and he turned around and went but Santa lives in the sky and he's above a law and inside I kind of broke because I was like no no he's really not and we're going to have a not a strict conversation but a very plain conversation about school teaches this but this is what is the fact a last one of Tala is the greatest the highest the, the everything and absolutely nothing is even comparable, including Santa, who is pretend. So we're very much stressing this idea of other people like to pretend certain things. And if we think both me and my husband come from non-Muslim backgrounds, both our grandparents like to pretend about Santa and have Christmas trees. So it's all, they like to pretend things, but we know that Allah subhanahu wa is the most important. The other thing that's come up is Mary and Joseph and the story of nativity. So I've used that as an opportunity to say, do you want to know about the, the real story of Jesus? And he's like, oh, yeah. So we sat there watching a little YouTube video, got our Islamic books out. And he's like, oh, wow. And he's now more interested in that story than the story he's been taught at school. He's interested in the made up story, the pretend story. But he sees it as a pretend story rather than the truth which subhanAllah, I, I was so worried. I was really, really worried. It was almost that thing of, this is the thing that cemented me, that school is just not the right thing, we can't do this. And now it's like, actually, he's, he's getting that a bit of balance. And he's only four, you know, he's still little, but he's getting that little bit of balance, which um, has calmed my conscience somewhat, Almas. Yeah, so I'm just going to pick up on uh, some a point that um, Amanda made and all the question that you asked you were saying you know you were worried about children and if they were shielded too much from society so it's interesting because that is definitely a point of view of people when they look at home educating that that is how children could be they could be kind of closeted they could be maybe shielded too much not really being interacted interacting with society in general as it works um and I remember when uh, when we decided to home educate and I would go to home educating meetings with other home educators and I was literally the only, not even just the only Muslim, but the only person of colour in these meetings because predominantly, it's becoming less and less so now, but predominantly, you know, it's just kind of uh, British white people that will be home educating, maybe from a certain way of thinking, maybe from a certain um you know, dynamic of society, I don't know. But so we would go there and people, my Muslim friends would say to me, oh, well, you only want to home educate your children because you want to only let them mix with Muslims. And I said, well, if you came to home educating meetings, you realize my children don't actually mix with Muslims, they mix with non-Muslims. Um, and yes, of course, they see Muslims from family, friends and whatever. So actually, and the other thing that always used to make me laugh, because I said, in what other scenario would your child or would you be spending six hours a day with other people of the same age as you five days a week? 
where where is that a normal situation it's not a normal situation so the normal situation actually is where your kids interact with all sorts of people from all different walks of life whether they be the gas man that comes to fix the gas or whatever it is you know they, they're mixing with everybody um and i remember when my daughter went to college and they had to do uh, like an icebreaker when she went to college because all my children were home educated we did gcse's with them and then they went to college for a levels um and she said, she goes, oh, mama, it's so annoying. People uh, just think I'm going to be really not very confident. I said, why? Because you've been home educated. And she said, yeah. And I said, and she goes, and I'm just the most confident person there. So I think it just depends how you raise your children and how you, how, what, what experiences you allow them to have. You can be very strict about it. I guess you could be where they don't see anybody of any, I mean, I do know families like that who you know they live kind of in the countryside they don't really want to mix with anybody else because they only want their kids to be upon the pure you know sarat al-mustaqim on the straight way and I get that you know and I do sometimes look at my kids and think oh maybe I didn't push enough Islam into them when they were younger but you know what they I think they have to live in the real world I want them one of the main reasons that ended up being my main reason for home educating the kids was I wanted my kids to be who they were wherever they were. I wanted them to be confident in who th their own identity. So it didn't matter where they were. If it's time to pray, you find somewhere to pray. You know, you don't try and hide that from somebody and think, well, it's going to be really awkward now. I'm going to have to explain that I have to pray. I want them to be confident in who they are. And so I've gone down that route of, you know, like all of them have done like drama and, you know, public speaking and things like that, because I want them to be confident people. Jodie. I was thinking as you were talking then that that brings us on to our last sort of topic of today, which is assumptions. Um, and I'm going to start off on this one and, th and then invite other people to to sort of join in. And it's a bit of a funny one. It gives people a bit of a chuckle of um, to my four year old. I quite often get asked, is he a convert to? Um, and I always smile and say, yeah, took him through his shahada when he was born. Um, and it's just interesting in terms of that assumption of identity. He's got two white British parents who are both converts, who, by the way, converted separately before anyone assumes that we're converted for each other, because that's another assumption that comes along. Um, but this assumption that it, it's something that he has embraced at a very, very young age. But equally, that assumption isn't put on any other children as far as I know. So Christian children aren't asked, so when did you convert to Christianity? Um, it's just a given of you're in a Christian family, therefore that's your family thing. Um, but it's interesting that assumption is is very um, specifically to children of converts. I don't know who wants to jump in next, Amanda, about um, yeah assumptions. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting one. And I think it really boils down to the fact that Islam is still viewed as a very racialized religion still in the UK. So it's not that it, it's not expected that somebody who is white is Muslim. And let alone being a born Muslim a convert is one thing. But of course, you know, if you see somebody who's converted to Islam, of course, they did it to marry somebody, right? That's the assumption straight off. But then so of course, if you see a child who happens to be white, who is born Muslim, that just causes sort of this cognitive dissonance of how, how, how is this even possible? Um, I mean, my children are, if you ask them, they would not say that they are white, but if you saw them, you would assume that they are white. And so a lot of times they'll get very, very confused reactions when they say what their names are. Um, or when they, and I mean, my eldest son, his first day of high school, he was called a horrible racist slur because 
somebody said, you know, why, why, why are you white, but you've got that name? And, and it was a horrible thing he was said. And he had never encountered this word even. He came home and he said, Mama, what does this mean? And I was, you know, I had to pick my job off the floor. Um, but there is just this idea that, that, you know, white people aren't Muslim. And I think that that is an assumption, you know, if, if the parents are white and the children are white, that yes, they're going to be assumed to have not had a white background. I think that there's also an assumption, this is one that I've come across, that there's an assumption across the board that people who convert to Islam are easily going to leave it again if they face any hardships, if their marriage breaks down and things like that. And so there is this view that, and I've encountered this a lot, that children of converts are less likely to continue to be Muslim as adults, um, which is very sad. And I have met quite a few children of converts when I was doing my MA degree into this topic. There were a lot of children of converts who I met who were not Muslim, you know, as adults. They didn't practice. But their parents were still Muslim. So it had nothing to do with their parents' religion or their parents' adherence to the faith or anything like that. It was just, you know, Allah guides who he guides. It wasn't because they had had, you know, non-Muslim influences. And I think what's important for us to realize is that I also know a lot of Pakistani and Bangladeshi and Arab and Somali children who, for all intents and purposes, are not Muslim. You know, they may have Muslim names and, and they may say, oh yeah, they, they do Eid and, and maybe they'll fast in Ramadan, maybe but they don't pray. They don't, they clearly don't believe like just that it's evident in their actions. So I think that this assumption that children of converts are more easily led astray is a dangerous one because the fact is all of our children are in danger of being led astray. And we do, all of us have to do the best that we can to protect that while understanding that it is Allah who guides. Um, Jody, you wanted to jump in on this? suppose it got me thinking about, so we know there is a risk of children going off the straight path what do we do about it? So thinking about my four-year-old, he's only four, but if you ask him about Allah, he can sit and tell you that he's the one God, he's our creator, he's our Lord, he loves us, he's merciful. So for me, my approach has been to fill my four-year-old's heart with love for Allah SWT. It's not a load of rules or it's not all black and white. It'll be things like, mommy, why can't we eat bacon? And I'll explain to him that Allah SWT loves us so much that sometimes he gives us little rules that we need to follow. And when we follow those, it makes him really happy. So when we pray, it makes him really happy because he loves us and he knows that it's really good for us. So now he's got this real, for a four-year-old, subhanAllah, you know, bless him, he's got this real God consciousness and it's lovely. It's really, really lovely. And he will quite often, in fact, he crawled into my bed this morning at, oh gosh eight o'clock it should be illegal but so sort of going mummy does Allah do this does Allah have toys in heaven does Allah need someone to play with can I go up and play with Allah so he's just constant you know it's that consciousness of having Allah in the back of his mind at all times and it's just a really beautiful thing because this is one thing I did really worry about you know when he grows up what's going to happen he's got loads of non-Muslim family he's got loads of non-Muslim friends the, the Muslim families that are at his school are not English speaking, so they don't mix with us at all. We've said salams, but that, that is where it ends. Um, so I was really worried about this. So I thought, actually, what brought me to Islam? It was the love for her last one of the So that's, that's the way I'm going to go too. And Alhamdulillah, so far, he is only four, but so far, you know, it, it seems like it's really, you know, it's on his mind. Hamas, did you want to jump in? 
I think that's gorgeous. I absolutely love your son and I've never met him. MashaAllah. Um, so I can't, I try to do the same thing with my children. I don't think I've succeeded as well as you have, Jodie. You're obviously a better mom. <laughs> um, but I remember once asking, uh, saying, saying to my, uh, she was six at the time, so my daughter, and I said to her, you do know, I said, if when you go to paradise, I never say if, when you go to paradise, I said, you can have anything you want. I said, and she said, really, anything? And I said, yeah, anything you want. I said, what would you, what would you want? So she thought about it a long time. She went, crisps, and I want to meet the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And I was like, okay. I was like, it was that few moment of, oh, thank goodness, I've done something right, where my, my child is attached to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. But I think with kids, when they're young, definitely, it's all about showing them how much love Allah has for you and getting them to love Allah as well. When my kids have got older, actually, I've kind of phrased it more like, if it makes me happy, I said, look, at the end of the day, if it's a decision between making Allah happy and making me happy, then chuck me out because make Allah happy. But I always try, and especially because I was able to care for my mother for the last three years of her life. I usually say to them, did you ever see me do that with your grandmother? No. Well, that's most really a good, good kind of like level of conduct is how did I behave with my mum is kind of how you should behave with other people as well because that I saw that as a really big way of teaching my children of just how much love and compassion you should have for everybody um and in general I'm in general I'm usually thought of I think as a kind person um and I want my children to be that as well so I hope just by my own example they will learn that as well Amanda you wanted to jump in yeah um Mashallah, Jody, your, your, your little one sounds so adorable. Tabarakallah, may Allah bless him and keep him on that path. Um, I think that this is really important, what you've said about instilling love for Allah and love for the Prophet them in their hearts, because I do see children, you know, my friends, kids who have been brought up with rules and, you know, fire and brimstone sermons every morning kind of thing. And it's an oppression. And as soon as they get any taste of freedom, they've gone wild. You know, I, I mean, they're, they're like these so-called good Muslim families who you see their kids running around smoking weed and getting girls pregnant. And, and it's just that sort of as soon as they're given any leeway, they just run with it because they haven't had the love of Allah instilled in them from that young age they've just been told to be afraid from Allah's punishment and of course Allah's punishment doesn't necessarily happen in dunya so they're not seeing it with their own eyes whereas his love you can see with your own eyes you can feel it subhanallah so I think that is really really important but we have to also educate ourselves to feel that at first um and I think, yeah, having a lot of non-Muslim family, it can be challenging depending on how our family is vis-a-vis -vis our conversions. So, you know, it may be that some people have to learn to set boundaries more than others. You know, if our families are accepting, we have an easier time of it than if our families are antagonistic towards our faith. So, you know, I had to set some boundaries quite early on with my kids because of how my parents were. But as time's gone on, they've eased up. Do you know what I mean? They become more accepting. So, you know, that those walls could slowly come down. And that can be very hard to do. You know, it can be very hard to have to tell your own parents that, no, they can't do that with, with their own grandchildren. But sometimes you just have to do it to protect them, subhanAllah. I'm going to jump in there because I think the journey with your own parents, so the grandparents of your children, is, is a real 
can be a real tricky one. Um, for my parents, when they found out I first converted, they were shocked. They were worried. The thing that got them on side was talking about the commonality of the prophets because they're both sort of, they're not um, very strict Christians, but they believe in Jesus, peace be upon him. They believe in one God, subhanAllah. Um, so it's, it's that thing of finding the common ground. So rather than me walking in and going, Christmas is haram, because my dad would just be like, what? You're not letting my grandchild, you know, celebrate Christmas. What's this about? But the fact that I go, we don't celebrate Christmas because we've got these two Eids and these two Eids are actually about this. And he's like, oh, wow. OK, so now for Eid, they come round to our house and we have a meal. Well, we'd have two meals because we've got two Eids. Well, hey. um, so, you know, they celebrate that with us. And then so my little one sees that, oh, well, we, we go around on Christmas and we, we give them a couple of presents and we come home. We don't do a big thing for it. But then at Eid, we've got loads of people around the house and grand's here and granddad's here and auntie and uncle are here. And it's all lovely. So it's that thing of he doesn't. I'm always very conscious that he doesn't feel othered. So now it's this idea of in school. Even the teacher, because I questioned about, do you at any point say that Jesus is the son of God? And he was like, no, that, that never comes up. But if one of the children do say it, I will take your little one to the side and just explain that he's not. And I was like, that's awesome. And this is a secular teacher. This is an atheist teacher. But he's that committed to supporting us that he's quite happy to have those conversations if it does come up in school. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things looking at the the influences that your child has, how you influence your child, you know, is it fire and brimstone or is it the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And, and really considering all those variables because at the end of the day, they are our responsibility. You know, we've got a lot on our shoulders to, to make sure that they, they start on the right path. After that, it's up to them what their path is. But, you know, we've got some responsibility to um, have some input in that. Almas, did you want to jump in? Yeah, so it was a couple of things. One, one of them is just taking it back to that original question that this kind of um, this thread has come from was the assumptions that there can be for children of converts. Now, being a person of colour and having married somebody who is a person of colour, um, who isn't a convert, um, my children do myself as well, I have assumptions made about me and my children have assumptions made about them, that they are in have been brought up kind of in the faith so especially I remember when I decided to wear hijab and then I decided to wear the abaya as well all of a sudden I was seen as this paragon of virtue I was new to the community here in Manchester having come from London after getting married um, and they knew that I was somebody who was quote-unquote interested in Islam and I mean no word of a lie I remember that I'd only been married six months and six months later somehow this is me not like in confrontation I ended up as the national sister in charge of Islam awareness week now that was the steepest learning curve I've had in my life but I think from that experience and and literally my anxiety levels have gone through the roof with all of that um, I actually realized how it's healthy to learn how to say no to things and I just started saying no to a lot of things um but also for my children I want them and that's all part and parcel of the way I've tried to bring them up I want them to be very confident in who they are and not have any feelings of insecurity um so if somebody does have any assumptions about them for them to be polite but firmly you know 
rectify that person's assumption about them in the nicest possible way. Because I think when people are allowed to get away with their assumptions about others, I think that's when prejudice can get stronger and stronger. Amanda. Yeah, subhanAllah, it just sort of struck me when you were speaking, Sister Almas, that, you know, all of us, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of us had our children after we became Muslim. Is that correct? And so they're going to, our children are going to face one certain set of expectations and, and assumptions. But I have a lot of sisters I know in my local halaqa who came to Islam after having had children and after having had failed marriages and so on and so forth. And the assumption that these kids face, I mean, some of these kids are quite young when their moms convert, um, you know, five, six, seven years old. And the community just assumes that the mother is going to take the children into Islam with her. This is an assumption, you know, that is flat out. And I, I remember a good friend of mine, I was talking to her about how one of our friends was struggling with her son because he's now becoming a teenager. His father is uh, not Muslim. His father is, is a very, very staunch Catholic. And this young man is having a lot of confusion because he's in a school where there are, there are Muslims, but all of the Muslims are Pakistani or Bangladeshi. He's the only one who isn't. And he doesn't know where he fits. And he doesn't know, is he Catholic? Is he Muslim? What is he? And a born Muslim friend of mine said, well, I don't understand that. When these women become Muslim, why don't they just drag their children into Islam with them? Why don't they just want to save them from the fire sort of thing? And I said, yeah, but most of his family is not Muslim. It's, it's literally only him and his mom and his sister. That's it. So, you know, he's got more Catholic influence in his life than he has Islamic influence in his life. And I think that this is something that, that as the community as a whole needs to think about with a lot more empathy is that children whose parents become Muslim when they've already gone through part of their childhood with non-Muslim influences, we need to sort of think, how are we going to nurture these young people? How are we going to educate them on Islam? Because their, their mothers are learning how to pray. Their, their mothers are learning al-Fatiha or their fathers. In some cases, you know, how, how can we expect them to also impart Islamic knowledge into their children at that very delicate age? Almas, do you have an idea about this? Or you have something yes. to say? Yes, I, um, I think because I've worked supporting the convert community here in Manchester for the last 25 years, so I've met a lot of um, Muslims converts from different experiences. And yeah, I definitely chime in with some of your experiences there, Amanda. So I, have, I know quite a few convert sisters who accepted Islam and you know, when their kids were, if, if I knew a sister and her child was, I would say under the age of four, then usually what I would see is that she would try and raise her child as a Muslim because the child was young enough maybe um, not to have formed definite ideas other than the Islamic ideals that um, the child's mother was trying to raise them with. But I definitely know sisters who they've accepted Islam and their children are teenagers, um, either young teenagers or you know older teenagers, and it is a complete struggle. They don't, uh, in the situations that I've come across, they don't really try and influence their children to be Muslim because they do recognize that they've lived for like 13, 14 years in a completely different lifestyle. It would be unfair of them as their mother to expect something like this from them. There's too much love usually from the mother to the child to expect the child to do something that was against their wishes. Um, but I have, 
the sad the sad reality is for a lot of the, the sisters I know, their children are very against them having become Muslim. They almost see it as a betrayal of their role as a mother, that they've somehow changed the way that they are. And in one situation, which is very, very sad, I know a friend of mine who her, her son has completely cut her off because she is Muslim, will not let her see her grandchildren. Um, and she's devastated by it. Um, so we've kind of adopted, she's, you know, my kids have become her grandchildren, you know, and I think sometimes, because Amanda, you were saying, how do we support these um, ladies who, these sisters who go through that? I think it's it's similar to one of the way, I know that uh, both of you know an organization where they do a buddy system. Um, so, you know, I think in the same way, there needs to be that social support, that friendly support for these sisters, um, because it's traumatic for any mother to be separated from their child, maybe not physically, but in an emotional way if they're separated, then I think that is a traumatic experience to go through. Yeah, if I can just jump in on the back of that and say, I mean, what we've done here in Wales, we've got well, okay, this is all prior to lockdown and we're sort of planning now how to how to work it post-lockdown, inshallah, or post-pandemic, post shall we say, quote-unquote. But um, we we used to run weekly halakas in the mosque, specifically for sisters who are new to Islam. And we had a, a brother's halakha as well. And we had at the time approximately four or five sisters who had come to Islam and they had children who were sort of between, who were school age. So, you know, between, say, say four years old and 12 years old, that sort of age. And we soon realized, I mean, we had a crash for them, but we soon realized that, no, they needed something more. So what we did, we asked one of the brothers who was involved in the, in the outreach team, in the Dawah team, to do a halakha for these kids while we were having our sister's halakha. And mashallah, it helped quite a lot. And what another one of the sisters noticed was she put her child into the local scouts group so that they were actually for the first time interacting with other Muslim children in an environment other than school. So all of this has helped these kids, but of course lockdown scuppered all of those efforts, but inshallah soon we'll be able to get back to it. I suppose um, I'm just conscious of time, so I'm going to draw things to a close. I think mashallah, Amanda, the things that you're doing locally sound amazing. I know in terms of Manchester, there's new beginnings, which is part of well, I'm a volunteer buddy for them. So I know Amanda's involved as well. Um, so, you know, if you do need support, contact them. You know, they are really, really helpful, mashallah. I suppose in summary, we're talking about, it's not this really simple topic of, oh, children are converts, parents. You know, it, it's really, there's lots of different expectations. There's loads of different experiences. And it's about, first of all, knowing ourselves but also doing things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that love and that mercy and instilling that within our children. And then inshallah, you know, we all go upon the right path. So I think it's that thing of, of like Amanda said before, having empathy within the community of all these different experiences and where we've come from and where we're going um, and just being a bit kinder to each other as parents you know if a mum's struggling actually reach out to them and go you okay is there anything I can do for you showing that support to each other because inshallah you know that's that's the beauty of the ummah to have that connection with other people so I suppose that that sort of draws this week to a close so we can all say assalamu alaikum for now and then inshallah we will see you all next week assalamu alaikum assalamu alaikum everybody see you all again assalamu alaikum everyone Thank you.